This is episode 95 with Emily Perrin. Welcome to the Athletic Mindset. I'm your host, Corey Camp, former Division I swimmer, forever athlete, and personal performance coach. Today, I sit down with CEO of Parent Wellness Performance, Emily Perrin. Emily grew up playing soccer and went on to play for the University of Virginia. Post-career, she spent time coaching both at the youth and Division I level. It was through these years of struggling with severe anxiety, panic, and depression that Emily found mindfulness. She started to take an all-encompassing approach to her own health, and now she helps both teams and individuals learn tools and techniques to address their own lives and find more success in it. She shares her story and drops some serious tips for you to start being more successful today. So please, welcome on Emily. Emily, welcome to the Athletic Mindset Podcast. Excited to have you on here. I know we met just a few months ago, but love everything that you're doing. So excited to share your story and dive into it here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. How are you feeling today? Off day? Feeling good? I'm good. Yes. Yeah. Tuesdays. Weirdly, I always say this and people are like Tuesday, like such a strange, strange thing. But yeah, when I have, you know, I obviously work in college athletics and, you know, when teams are in season, rarely you have both Saturday and Sunday off. So I have with my trying to put a priority on self-care. I also with, you know, being in school full time, I made it a priority to make Tuesday a, a day off. Things are good. The sun is shining and really, really can't complain. I was about to say the beauty of I've for two years, I had Tuesdays off at my old job and it was beautiful in the sense of you can go run all the errands that you want and all the places are open, normal, weekday hours so you get kind of some extra time back in that sense totally yeah it's like i'll be going to the grocery store here pretty shortly and it's great because nobody's in there right nobody thinks to go to the grocery store on tuesday afternoon it's like the highlight of my week so yeah i'm right right there with you (laughs) it's the little things like that right well i want to start into your story obviously with your athletic background Mm -hmm. played soccer at a very very high level how did you get started in the sport when did you first fall in love with it Gosh, yeah, it's always it's always a funny story. So I actually did not start out with soccer. I actually started out with swimming. I was a swimmer year round, very competitive. Yes, thought 100%. You know, went went to the the went to the Junior Olympics. I was a freestyler in a 200 diameter, and thought from a very young age, like, okay, this is it. I'm gonna go to college. I'm gonna swim. I wanted to go to Miami. That was like my dream school. And because who doesn't want to go be on a beach and, and be a swim and, you know, be part of swim and dive team, right? I just, I hit about 12, 13 and just cracked. I mean, just could not take, you quite frankly, couldn't take being, being good, not, not winning everything, the pressure being in my own head all the time. And quite literally when, I mean, you know, this, when you're a swimmer, you're literally in your head, right? That that's the only thing that you're you're really listening to as you swim. I just kind of like very quickly burnt burn out uh, and kind of, you know, I remember this very pivotal conversation with my mom. We were on summer vacation and you know, we, we just kind of like, I just kind of looked at her and was like, I just, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to switch over. And and I had dabbled in soccer. Like I'd always played like rec and ch- like challenge, which is kind of like the step up from rec, but like nothing too intense. And it was like a week before tryouts for the, the like premier travel team in our area. And my best friend had already done tryouts. These, these were like the late tryouts. My best friend had already done the tryouts and she was like, you like, go try out. Like you you'll make it like you'll be on our team. And I was like, well, I don't know about that, but I tried out, made it. And, and that's kind of when I decided to transition over to soccer and just Really, I think coming from swimming and being alone for the most part, I mean, you're on a team, but you're, you're alone a lot of the time. I really just like right away enjoyed the, the team aspect of it. And to be fair, I was on a team with, you know, my childhood best friend who we are still best friends to this day. We're 30 years old. We've been friends for, we met when we were four. So it was fun. You know, I enjoyed it. And, and I started to realize like, holy cow, I'm kind of good at this. And so that's when I kind of like, really transitioned over. It was pretty like in the grand scheme of things, when you talk about where we've progressed in the recruiting trail with soccer, that's pretty late to be honest right now. Most kids are like playing at a very high competitive 
place at like, I mean, God, like 10, it's insane. But, and I I don't really agree with that, but I definitely didn't really transition over until like 13. And that's when things really picked up. And I kind of knew, oh, like, this is the route I want to go. I want to play in college all the above. Yeah. I love that. And I love the fact that you brought up there of like, when is too late or when's too early to start specializing in one sport. And I think, I mean, just hearing your story, it's like, yeah, you experienced burnout at the age of 12 in sport one. It's not, it's something that can be avoided by, I think, allowing kids that space to, to decide, okay, is it just one sport or can you excel at multiple at the same time? Totally. It's better to say, how would you, how do you now being in college athletics, I guess, handle that situation? Or what do you tell parents of younger kids out there? I mean, it's so difficult because I mean, even when I was coaching at the the youth level, right. I mean, I got into coaching pretty much straight after I graduated and I, I coached this, the first team I ever coached was U11 boys team and they were rascals, but I, I loved every second of it, but it is hard because even like from a coaching perspective, like it's, it's hard when you're trying to build a team and we have culture that is so surrounded around winning right Mm. that well gosh if you've got kids that are all over the place and doing a bunch of different sports like yeah it's hard to make practice three or four times a week right and so like I always felt very conflicted about this like being then a coach because it's like yeah it, it makes a lot of sense that we put this pressure on kids and families to commit and I think the entire system needs an overhaul right like I I think the God, I, I really, I'm a huge advocate of playing multiple sports. I think that's how we should do it. I think kids should play many sports for as long as they can. I think coaches, especially at the collegiate level should promote that. I think there's so much that kids learn and things that are so applicable in terms of technical, tactical, physical, mental, that very much carry over across all sports. I think the entire youth sports system in our country needs an overhaul, but that's a totally different conversation. But yeah, I I mean, I think it's, I'm a huge advocate and I, I really wish that I had done a better job. My parents, not, you know, it's not their fault, right? We had done a better job of doing different things. I always kind of, even when I got into soccer, you know, very big time and was traveling a lot. There were, I mean, my friends played volleyball and they played field hockey and lacrosse. And I would have loved to try to explore some of those. Like I always kind of like look at, you know, I work with women's lacrosse at Duke and I'm like, dang, like, why didn't I ever pick up a lacrosse stick? My hand-eye coordination is absolute terrible, but you know, like I just, I just didn't because once I got on the soccer route, that's all I did. And I really wish that's, that is one thing about my, my path that I wish was a little bit different, but yeah, I'd be curious. I mean, obviously you mentioned your line of work now with Duke lacrosse and a lot of Duke athletics is more on the mindfulness approach and obviously with parent wellness and all that umbrella, knowing what I know there, it's the holistic approach is what I love yeah. about it. And it's mm-hmm. the holistic sense of like the identity of an athlete beyond just being an athlete, mm-hmm. which is why I wanted to sit down and honestly have this conversation. Do you think that I I guess my question is, how do you take that approach and still allowing and how does that allow for peak performance in athletes? Because in a way, it's it's yeah, it's almost backwards way of thinking, right? You Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. were conditioned from that early age to hyper focus on the one thing, the one sport, the one goal. And that's how we achieve it. And a lot of senses that is true. But this new wave of approach that I think you're trying to bring in and tackle and overhaul Mm -hmm. is actually Mm -hmm. saying, Hey, we can actually increase your performance by taking a step back. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. You're spot on. And it's a really good question. And it's, Oh man, like, Ooh, all right. I'll try to give my like best answer to this, but I think this is a, a very long winded conversation. I will also preface this by explaining to the audience, whoever's listening that my my, I'm getting my master's in clinical social work. And so what does that mean? Basically I'm becoming a therapist, but clinical social work very much looks at people within their environment and how their environment impacts them. We also look at 
kind of all levels and tiers of society. So we look at the micro, which is one-on-one. We look at the mezzo, which is kind of that middle tier, which would be teams, groups, small groups, right? And then we also look at macro, okay? And I, I say that because I think this very much starts at a macro level, right? And kind of what you hinted at, which is we're conditioned, okay, in this way, right? We are a society that, let's take sport out of it, okay? And let's just look at modern day and kind of what we place emphasis on, right? You know, a a lot of us are told that and, and really struggle with this idea of like who we are is what we do right? What is our identity? What is identity? Right. And I think this is, you know, and why, you know, kudos to you and why I love your work is because I think there is, especially within athletics, this massive disconnect of what makes us who we are. And, you know, for so much of our lives, we're told that, well, I'm an athlete, I'm an athlete, I'm an athlete. That's, that's my identity. That's what I've become. And what happens when I'm not an athlete anymore. And that's why we have a massive crisis on our hands, right? I mean, you know, the the, the transition piece of an athlete's life from being an athlete to not being an athlete is like, oh gosh, that's a, that's a whole nother, we could do a whole nother podcast on that. But you know, we, it's the, it's the issue of what we place on identity. Right. And that stems from, again, a, a larger piece of society, right? All of these issues and the crazy thing about, and this is my social work brain, but so many of the issues that we have as individuals are created because of society, right? Because of systems in place. Okay. And this is one of them. And so my work and what I feel very passionate about is look, we've got to address ourselves as humans first. Okay. Because the reality is, is that look, our career, our path as athletes can end at any time. And we see it happen all the time, right? Injury, all right. Too many concussions. Right. I mean, I, I just was talking with a player that was cut, right. Her athletic career is done, not by her choice. Right. But that's, you know, that's a very real thing. Okay. And so I, I think what this gets at is we've got to do a better job of equipping athletes with the tools to really get in touch with themselves as themselves, not as athletes, right? I think that this process is a twofold because when we get in touch with ourselves, right? This is what mindfulness is all about, right? It's tapping into who we are, right? And how we relate to the world and what makes us who we are. That inherently, right, does, I believe, positively impact, all right, us as athletes. But we've got to, we've got to equip athletes with the tools and the skills to really figure out who they are what their identity is without, you know, and aside from being an athlete, I think it can be a part, right. And I think there's things about athletics that can, you know, you know, very much play into who we are and make us who we are, but they aren't who we are. Right. And so I think that is something that we, again, as kind of an athlete culture, athlete society really struggle with. And I think when we do that, this gets back to kind of your performance piece. When we do that, we build something in ourselves, a foundation that I believe at its core is unbreakable, right? And and this is this idea of being just really solid in who we are, right? No matter, right, if we're performing well, if we're not performing well, if we win, if we lose, right? I get a lot, I was just having a conversation with a coach this morning about, look, there, there's a, there's a piece of this with the the team that she is in charge of. Like they're, they're really struggling with this, just navigating the highs, right. The wins, the success, but also navigating the lows. Right. And it's this, this fine line of trying to just stay balanced. Right. And just kind of ride the waves and not get too amped, too high, not get too down, too low. And I really believe that that happens Right. And, and one of the most profound ways we can provide ourselves that is through these practices of mindfulness and meditation and, and breath work and yoga. And that's what everything that I do stems off of. I I really believe like, sure. Do I coin myself as a mindfulness and performance coach? Yes. Because unfortunately at the end of the day, like we as humans have to perform right in anything we do, right. Athletes perform moms perform, right. 
I, I mean, if a mom doesn't perform, like her kids ain't living, right? Like we all, there, there's a performance entity to almost everything we do. Okay. So yes. All right. In is the end goal for, for me linked to performance? Sure. But what am I really doing? What am I really passionate about? Helping people just figure out and gain more insight into who they are and how they work and how they navigate things. And I think that is what is really, really cool about this work and really needed in the athletic community. Very long with an answer, but hopefully I, hopefully I touched on that. It's a beautiful answer. I loved a lot of what you had to say there. And I think what stands out to me is this notion of in the athletic community, in the athletic culture, a lot of times, not only is it an identity issue being single faceted in just an athlete, but you also have to talk about self-worth there as well, because I think that gets really tied in and looped in and interweaved with that identity piece so much so that like, I remember during my swim days of being like, if I swam really well on that weekend's meet, I was through the roof, ecstatic, happy. And then on the vice versa, it was like, man, this is the end of the world. How do you find that balance between being driven by a a bad performance to go back to the drawing board, work hard and Mm -hmm. and perform Mm -hmm. better next time out and not putting too much pressure so that it's like end all be all your self-worth is Mm -hmm. an athlete, good performance, bad performance. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard. And it, it takes a lot of work. Okay. And what I'll say is I think athletes in particular get really frustrated with this because you know, what happens when we let's take soccer, for example. Okay. What happens when there's something in our game that we're not good at? Okay. We, we understand that we reflect on that. We watch film, we go out and we do the extra technical and tactical work, right? There's like these tangible steps. Okay. That are taken, right. We get more reps in. Okay. We focus on that in a game or in a training setting. Okay. And the, the same thing applies when we're talking about self-worth, right? And this is, you know, what self-worth really to me is about self-love and self-compassion. And those are two words that took me a really long time to be able to just even say out loud because they give people the heebie-jeebies, right? Like, and especially in the, in the athlete community, it's like, oh my God, like compassion, like, come on. Right. Like, what are we, what are we told or what do we learn in sport? Right. We learn, I mean, everyone will like start firing off how to work hard, how to grind, how to be gritty, how to compete. Yeah. Nah, nah. All really great things. Right. All things that I value. Right. And I, I would actually say are very much my strength in life. Okay. But okay. I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't need those. We do need those. And we need self-love and self-compassion. And, and to understand what self-worth is really about, right? It's this, and in the profession of social work, this word and is like really big. And I'm a huge fan of it because it's like, no, no, no. It's not an either or situation, right? We need to understand how to grind and compete, right? And to work hard, right? I'm not saying that you don't need any of that. And we need the other aspect of things too, okay? Now it's really hard, okay? And I think many of us are very tied to this well, what's the quick fix, right? Well, can't you just, I have so many athletes that like, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. Can't you just give me a tool or a technique to just like use right away? And I'm like, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> like, and especially for my kids at Duke or at some of these like very prominent division one, and even at the professional level, like guys that are in the PLL that I've done work with, like, y'all think about how much time how many hours, how much dedication you've put into honing your craft in sport, right? The brain is the exact same, right? How much time have you dedicated and put into this idea of self-compassion, how to weather the storm, how to navigate emotion? And many will say, none, I'm really, I'm really unequipped. I really don't do it well. I mean, I'm 30 years old and I would say just in the last three years, have I really learned how to emotionally tap into things I'm feeling and how to navigate emotion well, right? 
that's not great. Okay. Like 27 years old. Right. And so I think for a lot of athletes, this is something that's really new to them. Okay. And so what I'll say is that the balance comes by doing the work. And that's why I really believe in these practices like mindfulness and meditation and yoga, because that's, that, that's the foundation, right? If you can't understand how to tap into yourself and your needs and to do it in a less critical, more curious way, which is the precursor to self-compassion, right? We can't get to self-love and self-compassion and what self-worth is if we don't start with just this fundamental block of less criticism, of non-judgment, right? Nobody in their right mind leaps from, okay, how I've been for the last 25 years to, I love myself, right? My self-worth is rooted in, you know, all of these like good foundational things. No, I mean, I did years and years and years of work to get to this place of self-love and self-compassion and, and to be, and to just even be able to mention the two words, right? So it takes a lot of time, but where does it start? It starts with just simply understanding what mindfulness is and starting to implement that into your life, all right? And I'll give the definition, which is this paying attention in a particular way, all right? And it's on purpose, right? So again, with that intention to look at ourselves in the present moment, and it's the this last piece, which many people don't equate to mindfulness, which is this less judgment, right? It's this ability to kind of take that step back and say, oh, I'm being really harsh with myself right now. What's that about, right? Getting curious, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I use the analogy of Curious George a lot because I think he's a great reminder to like, get really curious about our criticism and what we're linking to self-worth and why we're struggling with self-worth, right? I think many of us have this idea that, and this, this scenario happens a lot, right? We have this moment where we have some doubt, we have some fear, we realize it's linked to our self-worth, we realize our self-worth is fleeting, and we get mad, right? We get angry. We're like, well, why can't I just be confident? Well, why, why does this bother me so much? Well, why, right? And that's, that's the judgment, right? That's the follow-up that prevents us from getting to this place of more compassion and more gratitude, right? And more joy, right? And so in that moment, a lot of my teaching really encourages athletes to get to really dive in and to get really curious. Well, hold on a second. Let me push pause. Like I'm feeling this way. Why am I feeling this way? Right? It's not right. It's not wrong. It is what it is. Right? And so what can I get curious about? And I think that is the shift, a very monumental shift in, in many people's lives, many athletes that I work with to get to this place where we, we have that good foundation of, okay, look, I understand. And I, and I want to, to get better and I want to compete and I want to win. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. But I also have a place to sift through when I don't, when I don't do well. Right. And I have that, I, I love this quote that I can't even remember. I think it was Sharon Salzberg, but who's a meditation teacher. There's a difference between being able to objectively look at our experience, right? Objectively look at our performance and say, huh, that wasn't my best. Huh? I lost. Huh? We got scored on in the 70th minute, right? Objective, right? I did X, Y, and Z, right? There's a difference between objectively looking at that and putting our backpack on of this inner critic that's going to walk around with us for the rest of the day, right? There's a difference, right? And being able to, and I'm not saying it's easy, right? It's a very fine line of being able to kind of assess, right? Watch, you know, I think there's so much around college sport right now that is so tech savvy, right? I mean, Mm. athletes are able to look at their performance at like the drop of a hat, right? Which is great. These things are wonderful, However, I don't think what we do well is then teaching athletes how not to obsess over that and how not to carry that around and how not to tie that to our self-worth. And so again, it's, it's not that either, or it's the, and we, we need all of that. And we need to equip our athletes with tools and skills to understand that this is not who they are and they don't need to carry that around. Right. And how do we do that? Again, really long-winded answer, but you know, I, I'm super, super passionate about it and I can freaking talk about it forever. So I was about to say, I feel like I'm asking the right questions to trigger your own flow state and just let, yeah, it, let it all flow out of you. <laughs> and I think that's, that's huge. I like that last point of looking at feedback from different events, whether, Absolutely. and 
it's crazy whether it's baseball soccer doesn't matter the sport like we have almost too much data at our fingertips and it's not really i don't really think it's the event itself that's the problem it's our perception of the event it's the emotion that we then carry with it and i one of my favorite teaching examples is like you said carrying around your inner critic i like to think of each of those things like a brick so if we aren't well versed in the noting practice that mindfulness and meditation brings us of Mm -hmm. we notice the brick we acknowledge it and then we let it go we let it move on because Mm -hmm. we're locked back into the present moment we can't control the past now any Mm -hmm. any longer we just Mm -hmm. use that Mm -hmm. feedback to improve now if we don't get really good at that we just all of a sudden have accumulated all these bricks and all this data that's out there now can be a brick in of itself and it can be very very overwhelming for the modern athlete because all of a sudden they're hearing it from all angles (laughs) the equipment coach is telling them this the offensive coordinator defensive coordinator doesn't matter like everyone's telling you hey this is what happened it's that's why i love your work because it is note it let it go move on to the next thing and i think that's where peak performance lies that's where the zone flow state whatever you want to call it Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's how we, yeah, you, you hit on something. It's, it's, it's how we relate to mm. the things that are happening to the things that are said to us, to the things that we think. Right. I mean, the crazy thing about the brain is that it, it literally, the, the brain is the smartest thing in the world, right? It, it's smarter than any technology we can develop. Right. But the crazy thing is that we don't actually like, we are separate from our brain. We know this, right? There's there's what many people coin as the mind and then the brain. And the brain, you know, operates a lot of times via automaticity. It just does things. It says things. It thinks things, right? The power in mindfulness is that we don't have to always go along with it, right? We we have the ability to say, like, I'm not gonna go down, I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole, right? Like I'm I'm gonna choose differently. It's how we relate to the things in our lives. And I love the, I love the brick analogy because it's, it's hundred percent, right? Like it, it's not, look, the reality is, is that we're always going to have bricks. You will, as long as you're living, right. You're going to have bricks, you know, excuse my language, but like shit's going to happen in life. That that's, that's how it is. And, and, and particularly in sport, right. It's not always about changing that or, or getting like hypersensitive about controlling it. It's, it's how we relate to it. Right. And when we start to relate to it differently, right. You, you went through a nice, really, really succinct process of like, okay, acknowledge, right? Move on, do the next best thing, right? When we have the power and the agency to do that, we, we're navigating and we're navigating more efficiently. And that is what is linked to not just reaching peak performance, but maintaining and sustaining peak performance. And that's the, that's the money right there, right? I don't know an athlete, an elite athlete, whether the college or the pro setting, any, any of those guys that I, that I work with that wouldn't want that, right? Wouldn't want to get to peak performance and maintain it at a very consistent rate and level. And, and that's really why I think this is the money right there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because mindfulness, obviously, it's, it's tough to package and sell because it's not tangible. Like, yeah. And you mentioned Trust earlier me. where like the work yeah. even for the people that you are working with already, they're like yeah. – okay, I like, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Can you, can't you just give me something to like write out or like something yeah. to, to physically do? Because that's, yeah. the, that's our, our love language as athletes. Right. So oh, how are God. you bridging the gap between the two and making mindfulness more tangible? Is it conversations mm-hmm. like this or what yeah. else? Are you looking into it? Yeah. God, if I had a, a nickel for every time someone was like, well, how can we measure that? And I'm like, We can't (laughs) don't even try. Like, stop asking me that. I mean, look, it is, you know, honestly, I think one of the, the, the realest ways is, and I think you do a really beautiful job of this as well is, is authenticity, right? I think that I have had success in the spaces I move in because I literally live and breathe what I teach, right? There's not there is not a single thing that I do with my athletes. I give to my athletes. I say to my athletes that I am not authentically living. And that's why I freaking love this work and will do it for the rest of my life. 
because it keeps me so stinking honest. And I think that piece of authenticity is something that athletes really relate to, you know, so much of of an athlete's journey. And again, this goes back to, I mean, this is a whole nother topic again, about like how we handle and navigate mental health. But I think there's a lot of, there can be a lot of isolation in, in, in an elite athlete's experience, right? Feeling a lot of things, not having a lot of space to kind of talk about it, to experience it because it's not really normalized, right? We're moving in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And so I think I've had a lot of success and I've had a lot of out like, and particularly in a, a male setting, right. With male sports, many people kind of like almost kind of look at me like very surprised that I work with male athletes. It is because I'm authentic and I will, I will blatantly state, like I just posted something today about like uh, some fears and doubts that I've been really battling with over the last week. And I share that with my athletes. I'm very open about the fact that like, y'all you, the things that athletes struggle with, like more often than not, right. The self-confidence piece, this, am I enough? Right. It, when I'm not, when I'm not performing well, I'm not well. Right. These are things I live every single day. Right. <laughs> Like they are right. Every, almost every human does. And so I think that's the, the number one way. I think the second way is that I'm really, I mean, look, I grew up in this setting. Like my dad has a PhD in sports psychology. He's one of the, I mean, he's a very well-known prominent sports psychologist. He's been to two world cups with the U S men's national team. He's worked with probably 10 to 15 programs that have won national titles at the division one level. He, this is his bread and butter. And so that's the household I grew up in. Right. And so, you know, people always kind of laugh and they're like, you are your, your father's daughter. And, and, and I am the, this piece of kind of relating and working with athletes has always been something that I, I've seen. And I, I really think I'm, I'm meant to do, but I, I think Another piece of this is, is yes, what you hit on, which is having these conversations. And there is a piece of, I basically spent my entire, so I, I trained with a meditation teacher to, to be able to teach meditation and mindfulness. He has moved in the athlete space. He's done some stuff with the Golden State Warriors. And my entire teacher training with him was really how do we how do we translate what is a very old Eastern Buddhist slash Hindu way of being life philosophy, right? Into 21st century athlete. And so I put a lot of time and effort into, well, what's the language we use, right? How do we talk about this? How do we communicate this, right? How do you translate a lot of this stuff into a sport setting, a sport specific setting? A lot of the work I do sure applies very generally across all sports, but I also do a lot of work to make it apply individually to baseball and to golf and to women's cross. I mean, I, I don't actually work with, I'm not working at, well, that's a lie. I'm working with women's soccer team in England, but other than that, in the United States, I'm not working with any soccer teams. Right. So, you know, I've had to do a lot of research on, you know, well, how, how does this stuff translate to my athletes? And I think that's how we continue to make this stuff of interest and to relate to, you know, the, the 20 year old kid that's, you know, pitching in tonight's baseball game. Right. And it's just finding these pockets of, again, I think, holy cow, so much of this work. And I think you probably relate to this a, a lot is just, it, it's basic connection, right. Of being able mm -hmm. to connect with people via conversation and, and things that are relevant and important. And that's really just kind of like what, what I spend my time doing. You know, I, I spend, you know, I spent my entire Saturday at a baseball game, right. Sitting in the ballpark by myself <laughs> because nobody can come to baseball. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time making this stuff come to fruition. And I think that's what has paid off. And I think you know, at the end of the day, athletes, and I'm, I'll, I'll end my tangent here, but I think at the end of the day, athletes and coaches want to know that you're, you're invested. And so how, how do you show them you're invested? Well, you take the time to get to know them and, and to get to know what they need, what are their needs, right? And how does this stuff apply to them and how is it going to help them? And that's what I think is the, and again, that, that ties nicely back into that authenticity piece, right? I really believe in being authentic and sharing my story. I'm pretty open about it. I know not many people 
feel the same way, especially in the therapy world, right? There's this Mm. kind of boundary that many therapists believe that like, you shouldn't share anything about your life. And I feel completely opposite. (laughs) I think, I think you should be really honest about who you are because I think you never know. I think more often than not, I find that my athletes actually end up reaching out because they're like, man, I felt that yesterday. Like I was there. You literally describe something that has been going on in my mind for like two weeks. Right. And, and that's the gateway. That's the door. That's really, I think what it's all about. And, and probably my favorite piece of working with the, the athletes that I do work with. Yeah. I think it really boils down to human connection at its yeah. core and authenticity and vulnerability are two of the quickest ways to establish a instant sense of like, oh my gosh, I get it. Like when you and I hopped on a Zoom call a few months back, it was like, we were totally transparent with, this is what I do. This is what you do. How can we help one another? And it was boom, instant, like we understand it. I think that's the most powerful thing in the world really is when you put your full cards out on the table and don't think twice on it, but the person who sees it is then like, I get you. I understand I've been there too. And boom, you form this bond. And I think, again, tying it back to performance in the collegiate setting, since that's what you're you're working with, that encourages flow state for the whole team when you're feeling like you can operate on a day-to-day basis within a culture that allows you the space to say, hey, this is exactly what I'm dealing with. And I think that is a huge overlooked piece. I mean, when you talk team culture across all sports, whatever age, that's really the secret to a winning culture is that yeah. ability for your athletes to feel and coaches to feel like they can put anything out on the table, no judgment. It's good to go from there. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on. Absolutely. Right. I love it. Be curious to hear your definition of the athletic mindset, because I think you have probably a more multifaceted definition than most of the people that I've had on the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. That could also have another 10, 20 minute rant, but the athlete mindset, I think it's, it's interesting. I actually announced this on Kylie, Kylie O'Miller's podcast, but I just finished a book chapter with my dad. He wrote a, basically there's this series of books called the successful spirit. And basically what it does, is it pulls professionals from all different backgrounds, people doing different things. And we were asked to to write a chapter and our chapter is on these nine principles across both of our lives and experiences and how we work with people. These nine principles of, of what it means to walk into high performance. And I think this ties nicely into this idea of, of an athlete mindset, because I think the common answer probably from someone that just walked off the street, right. Of like, Hey, what's an athlete mindset. And you know, you would think people would say, Oh, hardworking and tough and yada, yada, yada. Right. Like everything we think about an athlete. Right. And I would argue that an athlete mindset is one that is rooted in insight awareness, being open, being willing, mindset that is rooted in growth, a mindset that is balanced with compassion, which I think is probably one that you haven't heard yet. And the reason for that being is because I think all of those things, right? Insight, awareness, being rooted in in the process and growth, balancing that with self-compassion and understanding what that is, you know, having emotional intelligence. I think all of those are the precursor to be able to reach tough and gritty and hard work and be competitive and reach high performance. And I'm, I'm not just saying that because... That's what I do, right? I'm saying that because I, I have seen a, a very monumental shift in my own personal life in moving away from this, like, well, just put your head down and grind, right? Just work hard, just, and this shift to like, well, the intention and my intention is to, to be open 
and to, to gain more information about myself and to be aware and to navigate emotion well and to be, to have high emotional intelligence and to have more compassion. And what I've seen is a radical shift in who I am, the quality of my life, the joy I feel, the productivity that I bring to the world, the work that I bring to the world. And when I look at those, right, the result, the outcome, I'm like, damn, that's high performance. I would say, again, there's those kind of key words of like the athlete mindset is one that is so rooted in growth and insight and awareness. And I, I think that's really, again, can be pretty counterintuitive and radical because, you know, insight and awareness is really freaking hard. It's hard. It's hard to look at yourself, right? It is. It's really hard to look at yourself and to want to grow and to want to be with not just the good, but the bad, right? And to really navigate emotion, right? That stuff is hard. It's, it's some of the hardest stuff you'll, you'll do in life, which is why many people don't do it. And I really believe that like that in itself will keep you from ever reaching your, your highest potential as a human, as an athlete, as whatever you do. So I would say the, the athlete mindset for me is really that is really, I've never been asked that question before, but I love it. And I hope, I hope my answer makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a lot, obviously a lot of synergies. I yeah. love that you tied in compassion in there as well. And I'm hearing a lot of mix of Obviously, society pushes the masculine traits of sport and really just society. Like for a while, we were really glorifying grind and hustle and like we all buy into that. It sells, you know what I mean? We want to think that we're working harder. And I've always been under this way of thinking of like, well, how can we work smarter? Yeah. Because if we're doing that and if we bring in that feminine energy space so to speak those emotions and feelings and intertwine it it actually makes the grind less of an actual grind and your ability Mm -hmm. to work hard in that moment is tenfold but Mm -hmm. no one wants to do that work it's almost like opening up a pandora's box so to speak of oh crap i just opened up this mirror and yeah i can see everything inside me i don't like this (laughs) yeah yeah it's scary shit like nobody likes to do that right there's been this there was this fascinating study that I think it was Harvard that looked at people's inability to just sit with themselves and be alone. And that's why many people stay away from meditation and mindfulness, right? Cause they're like, I can't sit with myself. Right. And that's a learned skill. That's something that, yeah, yeah. When I first started, I couldn't either, you know, I could last 10 seconds. It was scary as crap. You know, Harvard did this study where people literally inflicted pain on themselves to avoid being by themselves. And so that's a really real thing. I think, you know, The other like social work brain of mine, like looks at that and like, yes, we are still facing this very real thing of like this masculine versus feminine, right? And this idea of, you know, what we attach to femininity and and being more feminine is feeling emotion, right? And that's a really, and and I think a lot of the work that I do is about destigmatizing that, right? Like feeling your emotions is not girly. Feeling your emotions is not feminine. Feeling your emotions is human, Right. And what we perceive as girly is when I believe you see people that can't navigate emotion, right? Because what happens? You have a shit show. You totally have a freak out, right? You explode. You start crying, right? That's not singular to just females. That's anyone. I mean, and so I think that's what we, and and really, I think the disconnect is that like, man, what we're attaching to, to being feminine is actually the inability to navigate emotion, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if we just dropped that, what we could see is that getting better at navigating emotion is just a something we need to do as humans, right? And it's actually really beneficial. It gets to what you were talking about, which is, man, like it, it's this idea of like, well, we, we when we do that, right, we actually find that we are more productive. We are better humans. We, we have a better outlook. We're more positive, right? We're able to navigate things. So I, I think it's a really interesting, I mean, that could be a whole nother pot. We've, we've talked about, we've touched on so many things that could be in themselves, their own podcast, but I mean, God, it, it's, it's what it is, is it's detrimental to our, our community, the community we work in athletes. And what it does is it, it promotes this just very, again, this system that just feeds itself. Right. You know, because then what happens is these athletes grow up, they have kids, right. And these messages just keep getting passed on. Right. And so 
you know, I really, again, this is my very like social work, like social advocacy, like change the world. Like I really like a, a massive piece of my work and my passion is like breaking this, break this cycle. Like we can do better, right? We can absolutely do better. And like, I will say that like a very real experience for me was like, holy crap, would I want my daughter or my son to, to experience what I did? Hell no. And I'm going to do everything I can, right? Through my work, through my ability to parent, through trying to pass things on to maybe their future coaches, right? So that they don't ever, right? And that this isn't a thing for our culture and our society anymore. We got a long ways to go, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we can get there. Yeah, definitely. I'd be really curious because yes, mindfulness is hard opening up that box is, is a challenge and we don't like what we see. And I love that Harvard study. I'm, I think I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Is it they elicited shocks to themselves yeah. mm-hmm. instead of yeah. like, yeah, Being with themselves. Yeah. Crazy, crazy for you. What does step one look like to the person out there that's listening? That's like, this all sounds good and great, but Emily and Corey, I can't sit with myself for that yeah. 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. What's step mm-hmm. one look like for that person? Yeah, I think step one is knowing that there's other options, right? Like, sure, I would never tell someone that. And and this is why I'm like, really, really passionate about the work I do, because I think there's many people out there. I think there's many apps and programs out there that don't take into consideration the individual and unique experience, right? I'll take my story as an example. When I first started thinking that I should be meditating, I was living from panic attack to panic attack. I was in a fight or flight response and my system, my body, my brain was jacked. All right. No one in their right minds who's in that type of situation should be meditating. There are people who should not be meditating and I would not recommend meditation, you know, and and that's why, again, I'm, I'm a really big believer of like understanding the facts about the brain, our bodies working with someone. So I think the the first thing would say, okay, well, if this conversation intrigues you and you think these practices would help reach out to someone, right? Find someone to work with in some capacity, because again, I think it's there, there's a lot of information out there that is very hit or miss in terms of again, taking into consideration where people are individually. Okay. Two, it's understanding that you can do a lot of this stuff besides meditating. You don't have to meditate in order to practice this stuff. Would I eventually, you know, ideally want someone meditating? Yes. Because of the actual science behind how the brain physiologically changes through meditation, but that's a big step, right? I would never just like, okay, here you go go meditate five, 10 minutes ever. Right. This is why, right. I believe I take a very holistic approach to this. There's a lot of different things you can do. There's breath work. Many people can't do breath work because they are struggling with anxiety. The the breath is, you know, the breath is supposed to be something that's very neutral for many people. The breath is not neutral. So breath work's not going to work. Okay. There's movement, right? almost everybody can do some type of mindful movement, right? And that's how I teach my yoga is an active mindfulness practice, right? We are tapping into and we are exercising our mindfulness muscle through movement, right? Okay. What about somebody who has chronic pain? Okay. There's active mindfulness practices, right? There's different journalings you can do. There's different things where you can speak into audio files, right? There's a lot of different things that you can do. You do not have to sit still in a corner with your hands like this. Okay. Again, I'll, I'll kind of go back through those one. I think, I think reach out, find someone that does, if you're like, I don't know where to start. I can't do this. Find someone that does know and, and can help you and can facilitate a conversation about it to really find what works for you. Okay. Two, This is about finding what does work for you. Okay. Again, I would say a lot of the times and a lot of my work is okay, sure, in these team settings, but then spinoffs of working with individual athletes to really tailor this stuff to their individual experience, right? What is going to work for you is not going to work for me. And what works for me is not going to work for, you know, the person sitting next to me. And so it's about really tailoring this experience to, well, how, how is it going to work for me and what's it going to look like? Right. It's kind of where like, almost it becomes a little bit of like 
coaching experience, right? Of like, well, okay, now what does this look like in my day, in my life? How does this present itself? And so those would be my kind of like go-tos. And again, I just want to emphasize, like there's so many ways to, to do this and to start. You just have to, again, figure out what works for you, try different things, right? You know, I think even within my own meditation practice, like I go through waves of different types of meditation that I'm doing, you know, for the entire year of 2020, all I did was self-forgiveness and self-compassion work. That's a completely different practice than mindfulness meditation or concentration meditation, right? I've now shifted since then back to a more concentration practice. Again, there's so much fluidity with a lot of this stuff that I think people just don't know about. And again, it's find someone to have that conversation with and to explore a little bit. You have beautiful answers for all these questions. I'm learning so much in this conversation. So Emily, I appreciate it. I got five questions for okay. you, the fast five to kind oh, of wrap, okay. wrap things right. up here. They're, I got it. They're one sentence or one word answers. Okay. The first okay. one being, what's your go-to podcast that no one's heard of? Well, I mean, people may have heard of it, but 10% Happier is phenomenal with Dan Harris. Amazing. It's pretty much the only one I listen to. And I'm offended. Not this one. No. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Number two, favorite book in the past year. Oh God. Uh, Real Love by Sharon Salzberg. I can see how it feed, feeds into that theme of self-love and compassion. 100%. Right? Quote you live by. You can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. One thing you can't live without. Water. And that's quite literally, but also a true story. Like I literally can't go anywhere without either a water bottle or a glass of water. I have actual anxiety. <laughs> you know, the importance of hydration. I, I get <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it's real. <laughs> Last one of the five, your one word focus at this point in time. Grace. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, Emily, one, I want to acknowledge you for the work that you're doing because obviously trying to change society at a macro level is overwhelming at times, but it is so needed. And I think this conversation, we could have gone on forever and on all these tangents mm-hmm. on deep rabbit holes. And that just goes to show that the work that you're doing is so multifaceted. It has such a large scale impact. So I acknowledge you. I encourage you to keep going. Anything I can do to support, let me know. My last question for you is where can those listening in keep up with you and support you? Yes. Well, I, the, the feeling is very mutual. I am on all social media outlets. So Twitter, it is ParentWNP. Instagram, I've got my personal Emily Larson P. And then we've got our business, Parent Wellness and Performance. I am on LinkedIn, Emily Perrin. Our website, which is just parentwellnessperformance.com. And what am I missing? Facebook. Nobody really uses Facebook anymore. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, I, I think that's, I think I hit them all. Yeah. I was about to say, we'll loop them all in. If you guys are wow. listening and trying to find it, they'll be in the show notes. Emily, once again, appreciate the time. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Great conversation. Hopefully, hopefully the beginning of many more for us. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Emily. She's really rooted in the growth mindset, has great insight, and I love her take on just a balance in our lives. If this has impacted you in any way, I encourage you to share this episode with a friend, family member, or teammate, because we all go further together. Remember, if you can change your mindset, you can change your life. I'll see you all on Monday.